many of you joined us last week for the baptism? Anybody out there? Yeah, it was a great afternoon. The weather couldn't have been greater. The hoagies were good. And reading the stories and seeing the lives that have been changed by the gospel, it was an incredible day and an exciting time for us to be together. And I hope if you weren't able to make it, that the video captured just a small piece of that for all of us. Well, we're in a series that we're calling FaceTime. And it's kind of appropriate that we do baptism in the middle of that series because FaceTime is all about Jesus encountering people and then changing them so that the future is different than the past. And if you were there last week or if you pick up one of the outline sheets, you'll notice that all of the stories are printed there. And we typically have those getting baptized kind of write their story of how it went. And we give them this little bit of an outline. What was your life like before? What is your life like after? And sometimes there are radical changes and sometimes the changes aren't great, but they're kind of small. And then there's a section on how. How did the change come about? How did Jesus encounter you? How did the gospel impact your life that brought the difference between the before and the after? Well, I thought I would follow that same outline this morning as we look at our encounter in our conversation series. We're gonna look at the before and the after and the how for Paul. And we're going to call it On Your FaceTime. And if you know anything about Paul's life, you'll know in Acts chapter 9 where the how happens. Paul is quickly on his face and everything is radically different. So you can take your Bibles or your phones, your tablets, and you can make your way to Acts 9 as we get started. Well, as I said, we're going to start with the before. And as I thought this week, how can we talk about Paul's life before the radical difference that the gospel made? And so I thought I could tease out a bunch of details and talk about what his passions were before and how those things have changed. But then I remembered, Paul actually gives us a description of his before that he writes himself. And so from Philippians chapter 3, we have Paul's own words describing his before. So if you look beginning on like the fourth line down, here's what he says. I was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That was Paul's resume. And as Paul reflected back, this is what he was counting on. Let me just take a minute to kind of walk you through those to kind of help you understand. He first of all says he was circumcised the eighth day. Anyway, he said, well, well, big whoop, lots of people are circumcised the eighth day. But here's what Paul's saying. I come from a devout family. I'm not the first one that kind of wanted to get my act together with God. My family was devout. If you think about it, Paul didn't have a vote as to whether he was going to get circumcised the eighth day or not. That was his parents' decision, but his parents wanted to raise Paul, making sure he cut his teeth on the Old Testament and making sure things were going to work out according to God's plan. He was circumcised the eighth day, coming from a devout family. It then says he's of the people of Israel. We still use the expression today. The Jews are God's chosen people. They liked to wear that moniker back then. They were God's chosen people. And so Paul says, I not only was circumcised into God's people, I was one of God's people, one of, the, one of the people that call ourselves the apple of God's eyes. God loves us. He's chosen us. He wants to use us. I'm one of them. Then he says, but I come from the tribe of Benjamin. Why is that a big deal? Well, if you remember, Benjamin was the youngest son, born 
to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And so Paul's kind of saying, and I come from the favorite wife. Not only that, the first king of Israel comes from Benjamin. And so rather than that being kind of meaningless to us, that was significant back in Paul's day. And Paul says, I come from the favored wife. I come from Benjamin, the youngest of the son, the son that everybody else kind of revolved around. And the first king came from the tribe I belong to. Then he says a Hebrew of Hebrews. What's that mean? He's kind of stuttering. What's this Hebrew of Hebrews? Well, here's what it means. Not only was Paul born a Hebrew, he lived as a Hebrew. In the world at that time, a lot of the Jews were kind of, you know, compromising, living with the Greek culture of the day, and they were called Hellenists. They were more Greek in culture. Paul says, but not me. I was born a Hebrew, educated a Hebrew, and I'm living like a Hebrew, which also meant he could speak Hebrew. Many of the Jews in Paul's, they would speak Aramaic. They would speak in Greek, the business language. But Paul said, I know Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. I was born a Hebrew. I'm raised a Hebrew. I live as a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Then he says, in, regards to, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Now, when I say the word Pharisee, most of you have bad thoughts in your head. That's because you went to Sunday school. And in Sunday school, we learned that the Pharisees are the bad guys. But that wasn't true in Paul's day. In Paul's day, the Pharisees were the good guys. The Pharisees were the ones that believed the Old Testament, all the Old Testament. They were committed to not only learning what God said, they were committed to doing what God said. In fact, kind of the uh, motto of the Pharisees would go like this. Acceptance with God comes by obedience to God's law. That was the formula. To be accepted by God, you've got to obey God's law. Well, in order to obey, you have to know it. So the Pharisees were meticulous students of what the Old Testament said. But they weren't content just knowing because acceptance with God is based on obeying. You have to know it, but then you have to live it. And they were so careful not to break God's law that they built other little laws. They invented other laws around God's law to ensure that even if they screwed up a little bit, they wouldn't be breaking God's law. They'd be breaking their own laws. So they were meticulous in obeying and knowing what God said. Then we have this last one, or two more. As for zeal persecuting the church. Now here's what happens. This itinerant teacher comes along named Jesus and he starts saying things like, your righteousness resume, the way that you put life together, trying to check all the box and do things, that's not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. So acceptance with God is through me. Well, that sounded like heresy to Paul. And so as for zeal, he was going to persecute all, all the followers of Jesus, because they were presenting a way different than what he, how he was putting it together, a way different than he believed what God's word says. And then lastly, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That does not mean that Paul thought he never sinned. Here's what it means. The sacrificial system is part of the law, part of the Old Testament. And so Paul knew that he wasn't sinless, but when Paul would mess up, he knew how to cleanse the mess up. He knew what to do. He knew the right sacrifices. He would go to the temple and make sure that those sins were covered. He knew how to clean up any fault that he had. That was Paul's kind of resume. So over his life, we would have this. Acceptance with God is based on obedience to God's law.
And anybody that would step outside of that, he would condemn as a heretic. Any Jews that didn't live according to that script were not faithful Jews. Any Gentile, they didn't even know the law. How in the world could they ever find acceptance with God? All those people were out to lunch and separated from God. So that's Paul's pedigree. That's his resume. Well, how about his passion? Let me show you a verse from the book of Acts that kind of helps you understand his passion. It says, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, Saul is Paul's other name, right? So what in the world's going on here? The witnesses laid their coats at Paul's feet. Well, let me tell you what's going on. In Acts chapter 7, the whole chapter before that, is pretty much consumed with Stephen's sermon. So Stephen's a follower of Jesus, and he stands up and he preaches a sermon. The congregation, after the sermon, kills him. Now, I don't have to tell you all, I preached some really bad sermons in my day. But I've never met an angry mob in the atrium that wanted to kill me. They may say nasty things about me at lunch and say they're never going to come back, but nobody wanted to commit homicide based on a sermon. When Stephen's done, they not only want to kill him, they actually kill him. Well, what the heck was in that sermon? Well, if you read through Acts chapter 7, here are the outline points of Stephen's sermon. Number one, the temple is obsolete. Now, again, think of Paul's motto, right? Think of Paul's script. Acceptance with God is based on obedience to God's law. And concerning righteousness according to the law, I'm faultless. But he knew he wasn't sinless. He would have to go to the temple in order to be cleansed. Stephen stands up and says, you know, the temple that you guys kind of, you know, kind of lift up on a pedestal and you have all this stuff and you kind of honor it. The temple is obsolete. Paul's mind's going on tilt. The second thing he says is, your goodness isn't good enough. Self-help won't help. You can't be faultless. You can't gain acceptance with God by figuring it out and doing it yourself. Well, that's what Paul's living by, right? The script of Paul's life is acceptance with God is based on obedience. Stephen stands up and says, the temple at the center of your religion is absolute, obsolete. And by the way, you can't be good enough. And the third point of the sermon is anybody can come. Jew, Gentile, pagan, outcast, incast, anybody can come provided you come through Jesus. Not through learning obeying the law, come through Jesus. Well, them sounds like fighting words to Paul, right? So Paul not only agrees that Stephen is a heretic, he agrees with the mob that he needs to be murdered. They kill him based on the message. Paul's not content for that to be the end of the story. Paul's passion drives him to say, we need to rid the world of this teaching and anyone who claims the name of Jesus. So Paul sets out on a mission to become one of the key persecutors of the church. And as you turn the page from Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, you discover a great persecution now begins to arise against Christians. Most of the Christians, like you and I would have done, they take off out of Jerusalem. They're running away. Paul then says, I'll track him down. He like becomes a private eye. Right? He's a hitman for the Pharisaical mafia. He's going to run down the Christians wherever they run. 
He's going to arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem for a trial, possible imprisonment, and execution. That is Paul before. Now, here's my guess. None of you have that kind of before story, right? I didn't hear anything like that last week at, uh, at Quaker Camp. I mean, that's something, right? He hears what Stephen says. It so irritates him because he's living his life according to another script. He's building his life on a completely different foundation. He not only doesn't believe it, he has to rid the world of that heresy, and that becomes his motto. Because acceptance with God is based on obedience to the law. Acceptance with God is not based on Jesus and following him. It doesn't work that way. Okay, so that's kind of the before. Well, how about the after? How about the after? Well, we have a verse that actually some of you should remember because we did Romans for a long time. Here's the first verse of the book of Romans, which I thought some of you would remember. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, right? Small a, capital A apostle, kind of discipleship, disciple guys. Um, small a, the word apostle just means sent. So here's what Paul says. I am a servant of Jesus and sent for Jesus by Jesus. How in the world do you get there from that before? He's rounding up followers of Jesus, those who claim the gospel, for trial, imprisonment, execution. Now he's one of them. He's a servant. He's sent by and for Jesus. Oh, yeah, in case you didn't notice, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. 27 books in the New Testament? He wrote 13 of them. Boy, talk about a change. Now, to kind of make it easy for you, I, I like little easy things in my head. You can put the rest of Paul's life from his encounter with Jesus on, you can put that into three categories, each roughly 10 years long. So let me tell you about the three decades following Paul's encounter with Jesus. Decade number one is often called the silent decade. We don't know too much what happened. We do know he stopped persecuting and he started preaching. We don't have too many sermons back then. We don't know what happened. We do know he kept getting in trouble, but it's basically silent. We do know, we do know he went to Arabia for a while, kind of lived in the desert, kind of hung out, probably studying, thinking. We do know he went to Jerusalem and he met with Peter and James, just kind of check in with the honchos, make sure everything was kind of cool with them. But other than that, we don't have too much data. Silent years, you know, we know he was preaching. We know he went to Jerusalem. Uh, other than that, we know he's in Arabia. That's about it. That's all we got. The second decade, he was on the road again, he and Willie Nelson. They were on the road again. He was traveling all over Asia Minor, and he never traveled alone. He had a bunch of people that would go with him. Sometimes this, go, this group would go, that group would go. And what was he doing as he traveled? He was planting churches. He was serving as a missionary. He would travel to all the places, many of which become the, the, the titles of the books in the New Testament. Right? So he goes to Ephesus, he goes to Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica. He's going to all those places. That's in the second decade. So he spent his silent years kind of figuring this thing out. Once he's got it down, he then is on the road again. That's where his missionary journeys happen. That's where he's training leaders. He's planning churches. He's doing all that kind of stuff in the second decade. The third decade after his encounter with Jesus, he's in jail. Not all the time, most of the time. But rather than just mark time in jail, you know, kind of putting the little X's on the dates as they go by on the wall, um, he's writing letters. And so a lot of what happens in that third decade, he's writing letters 
back to the churches and the leaders that he visited in the second decade, seeing how they're doing, answering questions they may have, encouraging them, challenging them. So in the third decade, he's in prison, but he's working in prison. He's encouraging, he's training, etc. Those are kind of the three decades after. Pretty busy guy, right? How do you get to the after based on that before? How does that happen? Well, that's the third point. I'm glad you asked. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 9. And as I read, I want you to think of something. I want you to think of football. The way football should be played. Not with flags and skirts the way they play today. Real real football. Well, if, if you look at a wide receiver or a quarterback, you get a penalty today. And I was often thinking, the guy that hit Kessler the other night, if they hit Tom Brady like that, he'd been thrown out of the league and suspended for 10 years, that guy. Well, in the old days, you would have collisions in football, remember? And you got, you know, you got a, your bell rung, other people did. You got awarded for that. You got promotions for that. Nowadays, none of that's going on. But in Acts chapter 9, we have a collision, I know some of you think of Jesus, meek and mild, Jesus kind and gentle, all that. And that's all true. Not in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, Paul's on his way rounding up Christians, and he runs smack into Jesus, and Jesus knocks him on his face. So follow along and listen to what Jesus does. Meanwhile, Paul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's the last of the before stuff, right? He went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on State Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul who is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come, place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. 
It doesn't sound like meek and mild, gentle, kind Jesus, right? He kind of knocks Paul down, causes him to be blind, sends him into the city, and tells him he's going to suffer a lot for following him. We need to rethink or recalibrate our picture of Jesus a little bit, maybe just a little. Well, rather than um, spend a whole lot of time talking about the how, the ins and outs from Acts chapter 9, I thought I would tease out a few lessons. Tease out a few lessons that will refer back to what happened, but lessons that will help us put into proper perspective some of what's going on. Here's the first lesson. Paul had to rethink Jesus. Now, I'm not sure if you ever realized this, but when you read through the book of Acts, right, pretty big book, which was, which was written by Luke. It wasn't written by Paul, it was written by Luke. He wrote Luke, Gospel, and he wrote Acts. By far, the longest and most detailed sermon in Acts is Stephen's sermon from Acts chapter 7. He said, well, big whoop. Luke was not present when Stephen preached that sermon. How did Luke know and learn what Stephen preached about? Because Luke was one of Paul's traveling partners, and I suspect that Paul told Luke an awful lot about that sermon. In fact, one of the things that Paul's doing as he can't see, and as he's not eating, think about it, if you can't see, and you're not eating and drinking, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't, there was no internet. You can't have somebody read. What's he going to He's going to think. And what's he going to think? I suspect those ideas from Stephen's sermon are bouncing around in his head. After all, those points are what's driving him to Damascus to round up and take him back to Jerusalem. The temple is obsolete. Your goodness isn't good enough. Anybody can come provided they come through Jesus. And those ideas won't leave Paul. And he's wrestling and he's rethinking Jesus. And here's part of what he has to rethink. In Paul's before mind, Jesus could not be the Messiah. Couldn't. Because the Old Testament said, anyone that's hung on a tree, anyone that gets hanged on a tree, is cursed by God. Therefore, how can Jesus be the Messiah and be cursed by God? But if this is Jesus that met me on the road, then Jesus is raised from the dead. If God raised him from the dead and vindicated him, he must not be cursed by God. Well, then... Who was he cursed for? Who, whose sin was he paying for when he was cursed if it wasn't his own? If God vindicated him, for whom did he die? All those thoughts, I think, are in Paul's head. And he's wrestling and wrestling, not just for three days, but probably for at least 10 years in that silent phase of his life. He's rethinking Jesus. So maybe he's thinking thoughts like, remember, he's an Old Testament guy. Maybe he's thinking thoughts like this. How does the paradoxical message of Isaiah fit together? You ever notice that the first half of Isaiah, the Messiah is the conquering king in glory and power. The second half of Isaiah, the Messiah is the servant who suffers a lot. Like how do those two halves fit together? How about Jeremiah and Ezekiel? They both look forward to a new covenant. My guess is Paul wasn't thinking in his before life too much about a new covenant. How about the promise to Abraham? Abraham, through you, all the people of the world will be blessed. What does that have to say about Israel and Hebrew of Hebrews and, and tribe of Benjamin? It, what? 
I think those ideas are kind of bound. He's rethinking Jesus and how Jesus fits into the scheme of things. And the wrestling match isn't too comfortable, do you think? He's blind. He's not eating. Nothing else to do. But he's wrestling. He's thinking. He's rethinking Jesus. He's also rethinking himself, don't you think? Don't you think he's thinking, I know I'm not faultless, but I thought according to the law I'm faultless. But how does like an animal sacrifice really bring forgiveness of sins? Like, you know, can an animal from my herd or from the flock or something, can the death of that animal really bring forgiveness and cleansing to me? Like, how does that work? Maybe they were pictures. Maybe they were signposts pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant, and the conquering. Just maybe. Yeah, but at the core of all that is self-help won't help. And maybe Paul all of a sudden is beginning to reevaluate his life. Remember what he says in the Gospel of Romans? But when I came upon the sin of coveting, I was stuck. Maybe that in those three days, and maybe in that first decade, maybe that whole coveting passage from Romans 7, maybe that's kind of building in his head and in his heart. He's rethinking himself. And can he really be cleansed and find acceptance with God through obedience? Is that really working? And he doesn't have a perfect record. Oh, here's a weird one. How about second string servants? You ever thought about second string? We're in, we're in good company because here's my Most of us in this room are second string, right? There are, there are no varsity players here. We're all second stringers, right? But God needs second string servants. You ever notice that? In Acts chapter 9, there are two of them. We only read about one. Uh, do you remember the second string servant's name? It's not Paul. Paul's a varsity guy. You remember the second string servant? What's his name? Ananias. In fact, Ananias is such a bit player that I'd be willing to bet some of you were thinking this Ananias is the one that kind of lies to the Holy Spirit and gets buried. That's a different Ananias. Right? He, Ananias is a bit player. What does he do? Well, humanly speaking, if Ananias doesn't go to Paul, pray, scales fall off, tell him he's going to suffer as he takes the gospel to the Gentiles, humanly speaking, the varsity player never makes the team. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Ananias. A second stringer. Imagine when uh, you have the vision. So put yourself in Ananias' shoes. Imagine you're Ananias, minding your own business at home in Damascus, hoping that Paul, who's coming, doesn't find out where you live because he's coming to arrest people. And all of a sudden, God shows up and says, Ananias, got a job for you. Yes, Lord, anything you want. Go to Paul and pray for him. We read Ananias. said, what? God, do you know who Paul is? Do you know? let, let me remind you who Paul is and what he's doing. Paul's been persecuting your people. Paul's come here to Damascus to round up followers of Jesus. God, in case you haven't noticed, I'm a follower of Jesus. This guy's come to arrest people like me, take them back to Jerusalem, imprison them, and kill them. God, do you know what you're doing? What's God say? Go. And Ananias went. Huh. Would you go? Oh, don't answer. I, that'd be a long pause, wouldn't it? Go. And maybe the most amazing couple of words, when Ananias shows up, the first thing he says is, Brother Paul. What? I'd have called him something. It wouldn't have been brother. Um, brother Paul. He believes God and he goes, even though he's scared to death, a second string servant. But without, humanly speaking, without the Ananias, we never get Paul. 
God needs lots of second string servants. And that's good news for all of us. We're basically second stringers, right? But God can use us and wants to use us. We're required in God's scheme of things. Later on in the chapter, another second stringer shows up. His name's Barnabas. He's a little better known than Ananias. Barnabas, son of encouragement, right? Now, here's what happens with Barnabas. As you might guess, Paul, when he gets to Jerusalem, he wants to meet the other disciples. None of the other disciples will meet with him. Like, yeah, no kidding. Tell the receptionist, we're out. We're not meeting with that guy, right? Maybe he's pretending, right? You'd be able to play that out. This guy's just pretending to find out where we are. Once he knows where we are, he's bringing in the hit squad. We're going to all be rounded up. And since we're the leaders, we're going to all be executed. They won't meet with Paul. Barnabas goes to meet with them and he vouches for Paul. He said, look, guys, I know you're scared, and I know Paul has this reputation, but he really has changed. Jesus has radically changed him. He is one of us now. He's brother Paul. And, Paul, and Barnabas takes Paul and brings Paul into the company of the other disciples, and that's how Paul first meets the other disciples, the other apostles, because Barnabas got him entrance. Barnabas and Ananias. Second stringers. But God loves using second stringers. In fact, behind every varsity player is a whole team of second stringers that got them there. Now, what does that mean? Maybe it means something like this for some of us. Are you going to step up the way Ananias did and kind of do what God's prompting, encouraging, telling you to do? Here's what that may mean. When you're tempted after the service to be in the atrium and talk to all your friends, maybe you won't have that conversation, but you'll go over and talk to somebody else who looks unfamiliar to you and you've never seen here before. Maybe that's what you do. Or maybe you not only sign up for bridge, maybe you sign up for children's ministry, small group leader, maybe you sign up for students. Maybe you take a stand in your workplace more than you have. Maybe you sign up to coach a team. Maybe you sign up to be involved in your neighborhood. You be on the PTA. You get involved some. I don't know what it is, but I have a really weird suspicion that if you take a minute or so and ask God what that step would be for you, I kind of think he'd let you know what it is. And if we have the guts, like Ananias does, to follow through, just think what God could do through our church if all of us second stringers all of a sudden stepped up and did what God wanted us to do, it might just be an amazing experience this next run. What well, is one more lesson? Continuing what Jesus started starts with me and starts with you. It doesn't start with somebody else. It doesn't start, well, God, what are you going to do over there? If you do that, then I'll do it. No, no, it starts with me. So Ananias said, yeah, continue what Jesus started starts with me. And he went to State Street and he said, Brother Paul, and he prayed for Paul. Barnabas did what God wanted him to do, and he found Paul and took him to the disciples. Paul was on his way to Damascus. He got off the horse. Jesus said, go into town, wait there until Ananias comes. Paul went and then waited. I don't know what the next step is for you, but I do know that there is a next step. And rather than waiting for someone else to take the next step, maybe it's our turn. Because continuing what Jesus started isn't having us all the way at the end of some long chain. Maybe it starts with something God's asking us to do today. It may be small. It may be big. It may feel big to you, but on the grand scheme of things, it may not be that great in your own eyes. Whatever God's asking you to do, what do you say we do it? Because continuing what Jesus started isn't just a cool little motto for a church. It should be the marching orders for our life day by day, 
week by week, month by month. Get the guts to do it? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this encounter. And we confess that as we read, we can feel the emotion and have the same thoughts that some of them had. We can feel the fear that Ananias probably had. We can feel what Barnabas must have been feeling when he wondered if Paul was really masquerading or not. Maybe we can feel that our whole world has been shaken and the foundation on which we've built life has been crumbled underneath us, just like Paul. But Lord, whatever it is, I pray that you'd help us to realize that you call us to follow Jesus, continue what he started, and whether they're baby steps or huge giant leaps, you've got a next one for every one of us. Help us to take it, because anybody can come, but all who come, come through Jesus alone. Pray in his name, amen.